It's late in the morning on November 20th, 1980. Two fishermen relax in their boat on the waters of Lake Pinor. Leon Fiatro Jr. and Timmy Dore are locals. They've fished here a bunch. As they go about their morning on the lake, Viator and Dor have no idea what's been unfolding beneath them. They don't know that Texaco's giant drilling rig disappeared into the shallow lake. And they don't know that the lake has been draining into the Diamond Crystal salt mine. Now, the disaster has reached the surface, where the two men have cast their lines. Journalist Michael Gold later spoke to the fishermen. They had front row seats, literally, coming to the edge of the waterfall and you're about to go over the edge. You know, they were they were very friendly and cooperative and, and happy to tell their disaster story. It's about 11 a.m. when Viator and Dor notice that something's wrong. This is two hours after the last of the salt miners made it to safety. And it's been more than three hours since the rig disappeared. They're out there and suddenly they're stuck in the mud in the middle of the lake. Suddenly the, the elevation of the water has changed and then they look in the distance and they see the beginning of this swirling vortex. And then the catfish are jumping out of the water right in front of them. The fishermen argue. They know they can't go back the way they came because the water is too shallow for their boat. But they also know that the mud is too thick for them to retreat on foot. And the scene in front of them is terrifying. Viator later tells Gold that he thinks it's the end of the world. And I mean, just imagine what he's seeing. The whirlpool where the oil rig used to be grows wider and wider. It swells a barge anchored nearby like a big fish eating its lunch, which are Viator's words. When the whirlpool digests yet another barge parked on the lake, it gives the fishermen just enough room to punch the throttle on their boat and make a run past the whirlpool to the shore. They just barely made it out of there after they finally found a way to get their boat to shore. It was only a matter of minutes before things got really dicey and whole sections of the shore began to fall in and things were disappearing down that growing vortex in the middle. Somehow, Texaco's workers, the salt miners, and even the fishermen have made it to safety. But now the vortex is doing more than just swallowing water and barges. It's gobbling up whole sections of lake bed, and the land on the shoreline is next. Now, head gardener Mike Richard and the majestic Rip Van Winkle Gardens are in danger of being sucked down into the mine. From Campside Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. Okay, so if you're a little confused about where we are and what's going on, I've got my pal Lenville here with a recap. You remember Lenville, right? In this fairy tale, he's our guide. Previously on Eclipsed, Texaco's oil rig disappeared into the lake. Diamond Crystal's salt mine flooded, and the workers barely made it out alive. The story didn't get much news coverage because the MGM Grand Casino caught fire the very next day. Does that about sum that up? Yep, I think that that covers it. Thanks, Lemble. In this episode, the disaster spreads. We'll also get into the part of the story that the movies never show. The aftermath. The day after the day after tomorrow. This is the final installment of our two-part series on the vanishing of Lake Peñor. This is episode two. The lake that ate the garden. 
Chapter 5. The Evacuation of Rip Van Winkle Gardens. Mike Richard turns from the lakeshore and hurries toward the visitor center. It's mid-morning at the Rip Van Winkle Gardens. He's just gotten word of the collapse of the oil rig and the flooding of the salt mine, which explains the vibrations he's been feeling all morning. Now the zone of destruction is expanding. It's coming for his gardens. Richard makes it to the visitor center's front door. Then he gets on the PA system and gives the order for his employees to evacuate. And they must have been able to tell from my voice on the PA system uh, the severity of it because they were running. I remember seeing all the employees running to their cars and uh, quickly getting away. Richard wants his employees to get to safety, but he's in no hurry to leave. He's put countless hours into building these gardens, taking care of the lush lawns and tropical plants. And Christmas is only a month away. The nursery is stocked with 30,000 poinsettias with their extravagant flowers ready to bloom. So Richard can't just abandon everything. So he goes to the home of the owner of the gardens, a man named Lyle Bayless Jr. Bayless has poured millions of dollars into expanding the grounds that Richard is in charge of. After Richard finds Bayless, the two men and some associates head to the second floor to get a view of the destruction as it unfolds. We could look down onto the lake, just a couple of hundred feet away, and you could see the, the whirlpools developing. The barges were circling in the whirlpool, in the vortex, and then trees started falling in, and the lake bottom was just peeling off like as much as an acre at a time. And it was like a slice of cake if you cut a slice of cake and it falls over. That's what the bottom of the lake was looking like. It was just peeling off in big layers, big slices. The vortex eats more and more of the lake bottom. As this is happening, the men can hear a loud, angry hiss coming from a mine shaft near Bayless's home. It's air being forced out of the mine by the water rushing underground. And while they're both powerless to stop the whirlpool, Richard decides to document it because it's the one thing he can do. Look at the sliding. Oh, goodness. Earlier, he bought a camera to film home videos of his family. And it's that camera he points at the chaos. Look at that stuff going on. We were right on. We were just a few hundred feet away. And at that point, you could see the lake bottom, the whole lake bottom was exposed, and the water level in the lake kept falling as the land started caving in. Look at the land going down. The land across there. It was uh, quite dramatic. In the background of the video, audible over the hiss of the water, you can hear exclamations from Bayless as he stands next to Richard and watches his world get ripped apart. Look at this over here, look! The original owner of this island was a silent film star named Joseph Jefferson. He was best known for his role as Rip Van Winkle. Rip Van Winkle and his daughter, by Joseph Jefferson. My dear, come here and let me look at you. And much like Rip Van Winkle in the fairy tale, Bayless woke up and saw his world dramatically changed. My name used to be Rip Van Winkle, my dear. On this village of falling water, this was my home. That I had here in this place, I had my wife and my home. Bayless has devoted his life to these gardens. He's poured his fortune into turning this estate into an ever-expanding fantasia of exotic flowers and Japanese rock gardens. There's even a half-acre greenhouse with thousands of rare plants. 
Bayless is an only child, and he has no children of his own. He's the one who sold the salt mine to Diamond Crystal in the 1950s. To cap it all off, Bayless built a home for himself, the house by the lakeshore that he and Richard are standing in. Bayless has waited his entire life to build a place of his own, because he'd always lived in the house he inherited from his father. He finally moved into the new place a few months ago. Now his home and garden look like they're about to be sucked into the salt mine that helped make his fortune. The sheriff department arrives, and they urge Bayless and Richard to abandon the gardens. The sheriff warns the men that the crater at the center of the lake is expanding in their direction. Trees along the shoreline are being ripped out of the ground. It's almost noon, more than four hours after the rig's With one last look at the destruction before them, Bayless and Richard evacuate. Richard and Bayless flee the gardens and take shelter in a schoolhouse a safe distance from the mine. But when they enter, Bayless sees something that makes him stop short. It's a vase of green and blue peacock feathers. For anyone else, this wouldn't mean anything. But Bayless is a superstitious man, and peacocks are high on his list of concerning omens. According to family lore, his father was given peacocks as a gift back when the family lived in Kentucky. Apparently, the birds kicked off a long string of bad luck. The family lost their house, and they lost a factory they owned. So it made sense to Bayless to ban peacocks from his gardens. And that's when Mr. Bayless said, oh, Lord, this is what caused the cave-in. Which I thought was pretty humorous, but I knew about his uh, aversion to peacocks. and He made him get rid of the peacock feathers right away. But by then, it's too late. Chapter 6. With the peacock-cursed lake finally empty, the gardens lie in ruins. As Richard and Bayless shelter in the schoolhouse, the lake cave-in is wreaking havoc at the Rip Van Winkle Gardens. Bayless's brand new house is done for. His wine cellar is sucked into the depths. The house breaks in two, and the indoor swimming pool cracks like an egg. Giant rifts open in the gardens, and they take down whole trees. The new visitor center and greenhouse are destroyed as 65 acres of the gardens meet their doom. All the while, the mineshaft has been hissing air so loudly that they can hear it 10 miles away in New Iberia, the home of Tabasco sauce. But finally, the mine fills up. It happens with such force that a 400-foot geyser of mud and water erupts out of a ventilation shaft. For a moment, Lake Pinor is empty. It doesn't last long. Because this lake connects to a thin canal that leads to the Gulf of Mexico, and the Atlantic Ocean has more than enough water to fill one empty lake. The canal reverses its course and it's pulling tugboats and barges back into the lake along with it. They're headed for a waterfall that drops into the wet mud that's now the bottom of Lake Pinor. Chapter 7. The parties sue each other, eager to secure justice and place blame. 
So here's the part of the story that we promised you at the top of the episode. The part of the story that the disaster movies don't usually show. What happens afterward? When we last left Lake Pinor, a river had reversed its course. A canal leading to the Gulf of Mexico, to be exact. That canal is dragging tugboats and barges backwards and tossing them over the waterfall that's now refilling the lake. Suddenly, Lake Pinor features the tallest waterfall in the state of Louisiana. But let's skip forward a bit. The lake refills, and some of the lost barges even pop back onto the surface, like giant floaty toys in a kid's bathtub. According to unconfirmed reports, natural gas bubbles are rising to the surface of the lake, and Texaco employees fire flaming arrows at them to try and burn them off. Which, if you're into metaphors, you could say is kind of like a Viking funeral, but for the lake. Anyway, Lake Pinor is a lake again. It's full of water, albeit with a lot of devastation surrounding it. The lake's salinity has changed from freshwater to brackish, which is the technical term for kind of salty. Naturally, that sets the scene for a whole barge load of lawsuits. Diamond Crystal lost their salt mine, valued at $50 million. So they sue Texaco, accusing them of puncturing the mine. Texaco sues Diamond Crystal, saying they did a bad job of digging their mine in the first place. The salt miners sued Texaco because they're suddenly out of jobs. And Rip Van Winkle Gardens sues both Texaco and Diamond Crystal for inflicting biblical levels of devastation on their Garden of Eden. I wish I could tell you what happened with all those lawsuits, but most were settled out of court, so legally we can't really know the outcome. We can't even know whether any of the parties admitted to fault in the first place. We do, however, know that Texaco paid Diamond Crystal $32 million and that the gardens got $12.8 million. The miners got paid out, too. So the lake is topped up. The courts and lawyers did their thing to dispense justice. No one died. No one was even injured. So Lake Pinor is the rare, large-scale industrial accident where everything turned out fine, relatively speaking. Also, for what it's worth, I tried to get in touch with Diamond Crystal in Texaco, but they didn't get back to me. All's well that ends well? Chapter 8. Our host, Bijan Stephen, elucidates a theory. Maybe this is a dumb question, but you think there was a moral to any of that? Hmm. I think there is a little bit of a moral to it, and it's, it's just because you think you have your I's dotted and your T's crossed. Don't let that make you sloppy. Don't let that make you negligent, criminally negligent in some cases, especially in science or technology. You've got to know what you're working with. you got to double check and triple check. And if you don't, it's going to come back to bite you. Maybe that's, that's the moral for, for the, the lake that disappeared. I want to take a minute to reflect on that. What Gold is saying is that human error is unpredictable in its predictability. You double and triple check, but to loosely quote the Bible, you know neither the hour nor the day. Sometimes a salt mine drains a lake. The reason the miners escaped is because humans can adapt. Wilford Johnson got those men out because he could change in response to a force majeure, that thing insurance contracts call an act of God. The salt mine and the oil rig couldn't. In any case, the lake is back, only a little different than it was before. According to what I could find, at least. 
I reached out to a bunch of environmental groups who didn't get back to me. But I think I'm on solid ground when I say there's a circularity here. Maybe the moral, to answer my own question, is just that shit happens? That's a cop-out, I know. But hear me out. There is an alternate universe in which dozens of miners drown as a result of the exact same circumstances. And in that universe, the story of Lake Pinor gets a lot more attention. An oil company gets a lot more scrutiny. And maybe in that timeline, America does more to fix climate change as a result. In any case, the story wouldn't be eclipsed. But really, it makes me think about the near misses that I've had. Like that time I was walking with that date that one evening, and a car nearly ran both of us over. But for whatever reason, it didn't. We've all had close calls, and everyone has thought about what it would mean to be on the other side of one. Once you come out unscathed, part of you still lives in that moment. You're constantly wondering, what if? And in the case of Lake Pinor, thanks to pure luck, everything worked out for Richard, Bayless, and the miners. They get to wonder. Chapter 9, an epilogue for Rip Van Winkle. The Rip Van Winkle Gardens were closed for three years. Lyle Bayless Jr., the owner, decided not to rebuild his dream house on the peacock-cursed shores of Lake Pinor. Instead, he moved to Maui. But not before Mike Richard hired scuba divers to recover his prized wine cellar. A company from Pennsylvania found a way to repurpose the old salt mine to store natural gas deep underground, where it sits until it makes sense to sell. Bayless died a few years after the disaster, but Mike Richard kept working for the gardens. And in 2003, he jumped on an opportunity to purchase the property. Now Richard is semi-retired. His son runs the nursery, and his daughter runs the gardens. It's a good family business. Tourists are back on the shores of Lake Pinor. Fishermen enjoy the waters, and management has a new policy. If you just stand still, they'll come and show off for you. The male peacocks are very proud and like an audience. Dozens of peacocks now roam the grounds. The streak of bad luck is over, and there hasn't been a disaster since. They all lived happily ever after. The end. Next on Eclipsed, a special holiday episode featuring drunken sailors. Eclipse is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Canyon Meyer. We're produced by Lane Gerbig and Joe Hawthorne. Archival research by Caitlin Rathy. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon, and our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and the big man himself, Michael Kenyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. A special thanks to Michael Gold for his reporting. Check out his book about a disaster in cancer research called A Conspiracy of Cells, wherever you get your books. A very special thanks to Mike Richard for his help telling the story so long after he witnessed it. 
And, of course, thanks to Lenville Brown for narrating. Go check out his work on Disco Elysium, where he's quite literally the voice inside your head. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch, but not Instagram. That's different. I mean, not really. It's just a different username. Anyway, thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>